Hello, and welcome to the Energy Observatory podcast. I'm your host, Sebastian Gonzato, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing researchers from KU Leuven's Energy Systems Integration and Modeling Group and the Vleric Energy Institute to talk about their research and the policy discussions surrounding them. We're academics, so we hate being wrong. If you think we did get something wrong, then please send an email to sebastian.gonzato at kluven.be and we'll include your comment on an errata that will accompany each episode on our website. So I'm here with Mihil Kienis. I That was my attempt at a Flemish accent, who has graciously accepted to talk to us about flow-based market coupling. Hello. Hi, Sebastian. How are you doing? I'm doing great. You actually beat me to that question. I was going to ask how you're doing. Well, I'm super excited to be here and to be the first guest. Um, I'm very curious how we can uh, give our message uh, of the research that we, that we perform in our daily basis uh, towards a more broad public. Uh, so I'm very curious. Yeah, and I hope we can make it interesting for those of you at home. And yes, indeed, thank you for being... I like to think of you as uh, my first victim, uh, not guest. So thank you very much for agreeing to this. So we're going to talk about flow-based market coupling, which is uh, a big part of your PhD. And so to get into that topic, I think you need to explain to us how electricity works. How, do, how on earth do, do we get electricity? Yeah, that's that's a valid question. Uh, let's let's go back to the basics. One of the the reasons actually why the electricity sector is so so interesting, I would say, is that we simply can't tell electricity to flow directly from point A to point B. Instead, the Kirchhoff's laws uh, that most of us taught in the in the in secondary school, they tell us how electricity flows through a network. As such. Electric power spreads across all parallel paths between point of injection, so where the generator is is located, and the point of withdrawal, where the consumers are. So we don't have that much control about how electricity flows through the network. So I think you're going to talk to us about how that impacts. Uh, yeah, you could basically. you could indeed wonder why why does it matter huh, that, that we have a lot of parallel paths in which electricity spreads. Um, well, there are two things actually important to consider here. Um, firstly, every transmission line has its capacity and we have to prevent the electricity to flow um, to exceed the capacity of the transmission lines they flow through. So otherwise damages occur. And secondly, uh, why it is important to consider is that it is essential to continuously balance the electricity network. We have to inject an equal amount of electric power in the network as we extract electrical power from the network. Otherwise, electricity starts to take weird shapes, causing damages um, to, for example, uh, some appliances uh, that is powering. So, uh, as you might have uh, guessed by now, the flow of electricity in the network is is not super simple as one might intuitively think. but the real challenge, however, is when one starts trading electricity. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today, uh, trading electricity internationally. Yes, exactly. So I guess we should then start talking about nodal versus zonal pricing. So what is nodal pricing and what is zonal pricing? How are they different? Yeah, so when we want to start trading electricity, we need a market for that. Huh? 
But if we look at those markets, there are typically two options. You have zonal markets and nodal market designs. And they are, these are um, two fundamentally different ways to organize your market. A nodal market design is in place, in, for example, in some parts of the US and definitely outperforms a zonal market design. Let that be clear. That is because it implies that at each node, so a point of injection of or withdrawal of electricity, at each node there is an individual price. And that is beneficial because price signals can be given in the most detailed way there can be. So you're talking about price signals there. Uh, what, what do you mean by price signals and what do you mean by having different price signals at different nodes? And why is that important actually? Price signals that the market gives is especially important for investments. Huh? Firstly, for generation capacity. Uh, if there exists, for example, a high price in a specific node in the network, this gives a signal uh, that investment in a novel power plant at that node might be beneficial. And not just a power plant, right? I mean, it signals that something needs to be done to manage. Yeah, it, it can industrial. go to consumption as well. It's just an yeah. example. Um, storage, it goes on generation. Example, yeah. Storage, indeed, is also um, an agent that can be addressed with these price signals. Secondly, it's also the investments for transmission capacity. If there is a price difference between two nodes that are directly interconnected, this indicates that the interconnecting transmission line is used up to its full capacity. Hence, the price difference signals that investment in additional transmission capacity could be beneficial. And that's what you have with nodal pricing. You have at each node a different price and all these prices give nice signals to market participants. However, uh, in Europe, as you know, we have a zonal market design. That's totally different because in every country in a, in a zonal market design, or I would say actually in every market zone, uh, as you like, um, there is a single wholesale electricity price. However, the, the, the characteristic of the zonal market is that uh, thousands of nodes are grouped in zones and thousands of, of transmission lines are reduced to only a few dozen of interconnections when considering these zonal markets. So the basic thing is nodal information, so for example, on the position of generators and consumers within a zone is lost if you have a certain zonal market clearing procedure. And therefore, the network model that is used in European electricity markets is strongly simplified compared to the actual physical network uh, just because we have this zonal market design. And it goes without saying yeah, that the simplification of the physical grid into a market model um, that is zonal comes with a loss of accuracy resulting in uh, disconnect between physical commercial, the physical flows on the one hand and commercial flows on the other hand. And that might lead to line overloadings. And that's what we want to avoid, right? Yeah. So you mentioned commercial and physical flows. But uh, before we get onto that, so, so concretely, the, the issue, let's say, with zonal pricing, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you have two no uh, nodes within a zone and there's congestion between those two nodes, you should get a difference in price which signals investments, but zones force the same price with on those two nodes. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so that's cleared up. 
but you yeah you mentioned physical and commercial flows so uh go it's super interesting to talk about because it, it, it brings us for example to concepts like loop flows um i think loop flows is a is a term that one often hears when uh when talking on flow based market coupling if you're, if you're doing a phd in uh, <laughs> energy markets <laughs> if you're doing a phd in energy marketing <laughs> you're unless, a bit in the field yeah uh, loop flows is a term that you often hear um and that's also a consequence of the difference between commercial and physical flows. For example, if two nodes are in the same market zone, like you mentioned, and an intrazonal commercial transaction between those nodes takes place, it also results in physical flows through the neighboring market zones. Um, and these flows are referred to as loop flows. So put differently, loop flows are physical flows between market zones, which are not seen by the market as they result from intrazonal transactions. And the flow-based market coupling methodology attempts to account for these loop flows uh, to a, to some extent. Yeah, so that's quite a... I have to say, I, I'm, I'm sure that most people can't picture what's happening there. So, um, yeah, please just... Uh, I, you have an example lined up for us. Uh, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Ahead. Indeed, the typical example to to mention here is that one of, of Germany, indeed. Um, and hope that makes things a bit more clear, indeed. Uh, what's the situation in Germany? You have a lot of wind generation in the north because there is a lot of wind available there. But consumption in Germany typically is concentrated in the south. Huh? So uh, there needs to be some transactions uh, from the north to the south. Um, that's both in terms of trading. Huh? So there's a commercial trade from the north to the south, but there's also electricity transmission from the north to the south. But the fact that we have a zonal market design here enforces us to have one price in whole Germany because that's just one zone. And because there is one price both in the north and the south, insufficient price signals for, for example, generation investments in the south are given. Uh, and this would have, if we would have those price signals, this would have, to, uh, this would have allowed for a decreased need of interconnection capacity or at least the transmission capacity could at least be used for something else uh, that's more economically efficient. Um, yeah, and so actually, I mean, we'll get back to this later, but uh, the obvious solution to this is to split Germany into two zones, right? For example, yeah, that would uh, a split of the zone in Germany would, would give more proper signals, indeed, and would also see decrease loop flows that we have, huh? because we just talked on it, and Germany is a perfect example to illustrate loop flows as well. Because there is quite some limited transmission capacity between the north and the south, while there is still trade between the north and the south. So what happens? Some flows uh, go through the Netherlands, Belgium, France, to arrive at the south of Germany. And crucially, that stops uh, trade from happening within those countries, or, or it causes congestions in these in those countries. Potentially, Indeed, not it, all it the time. Majorly reduces the ability for trade in those countries. Um, and from a welfare perspective, we could question whether that's optimal. Um, Indeed, correct. And actually, um, I looked up, uh, and at one point I looked this up before the podcast. And at one point, the Craig uh, was uh, or someone from the Craig, so the Belgian Energy Regulator, was talking to. Uh, the Belgian parliament and uh, uh, in some sense complaining about these loop flows because they mean that um, Belgium during times of stress has less uh, transmission capacity available for it. So I think this was in 2019 when there was 
issues with uh, nuclear availability, so Belgium was relying more on trade. So th- this is why uh, these these issues are interesting, I guess, because yeah, they, yeah, they do it's have very quite, interesting uh, um, because they also have a they do have consequences. Impact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, indeed, and and people, I think you can get quite uh, people quite riled up <laughs> <laughs> if you would really want to. Yeah, um, but so, so so that's loop flows. But how? Let's say you're trading. You, you're trading on a market. How how do you know? how much you're producing in one zone like belgium how much can you trade with germany how do you yeah yeah so there's two things basically you're trading electricity on the one hand but you're also using transmission capacities so those transmission capacities need to be traded somehow with it and how it happens in europe is that transmission capacity typically is implicitly auctioned together with the electricity or the energy itself Um, but before one can trade that uh, transmission capacity, one should first know how much transmission capacity one can trade. Because an essential thing is here that the commercial capacity, the t- commercial transmission capacity, I must say, that is traded in the market differs from the physical capacity that is installed in our grid. Hmm. Why is that? Because we just showed through some examples that uh, physical flows typically differ from commercial flows that we have, such that commercial transmission capacity um, that can be traded should be less than the physical transmission capacity that is available. And this is to avoid dangerous overloadings because we know that the actual physical flows can be larger than the commercial transmission capacity that we gave to the market. And calculating this commercial transmission capacity for trade is a task that lays with the transmission system operators or the TSOs if you like. So to, to to bring that back to the the loopflows question, you would tell the market, hey, you can only use fifty percent of this interconnector to avoid, uh, well, to deal with the fact that you might get loopflows, which mean that you can actually trade less yeah. than you. You're basically saying use fifty percent of this when trading, uh, because we know that if you trade, in the end, we will still observe a full capacity usage of that line. Indeed. Yeah. Okay. So I think at this point uh, we're ready to understand what flow-based market coupling is. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> we get to the topic Maybe. indeed. Um, like concisely phrased, flow-based market coupling is nothing more than a methodology hmm, to organize wholesale electricity markets. Where so simple, really. So Just simple. So, yeah. so clear. I get it all now. Thank you. <laughs> Two things here. Um, the methodology allows that multiple zones or countries, if you like, to be involved in one market clearing procedure. Second thing is, the flow-based market coupling methodology is the reason um, or it came into our lives because it is specifying how to take into account the characteristics of the grid into the markets uh, because we know there is a difference between the physical and the commercial flows. Um, and it comes specifically, it comes with a way to calculate the commercial transmission capacity that is given to the market for trade. And that's basically it. How it's done, that's quite complex, but the goal of flow-based market coupling is this. All right. And uh, I mean, before flow-based market coupling, there was still trade between uh, countries or market zones in the EU, right? So how did that work? Mm -hmm. So previously, before the introduction of flow-based market coupling in Europe, we had uh, an an approach we call the net transfer capacity, uh, which was in place before the 20th of May in, in 2015, when the when the shift was made, at least in Central Western Europe, um, from NTC to flow-based market coupling. 
Um, by the way, it might also be useful to mention that, that the Central Western Europe I'm talking about covers uh, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Germany, Austria, and, and Luxembourg. I must also say that because uh, it's part of the German zone as well. Um, so in essence, the um, flow-based market coupling, in flow-based market coupling, there is a reduction of a full description of the physical grid to a simplified market model. And this reduction, um, I would summarize it in two steps. Uh, firstly, there's a reduction of the full network into a set of equivalent zones and interconnectors with a relationship between injections and flows. And secondly, there is a calculation of the transmission capacity that can be used by the market for commercial transactions on these selected network elements uh, that we selected in the first step. Now, this calculation process um, is a very complex procedure. It's executed by TSOs and it's regulated by the, by the national regulators. What is new, though, compared to the old NTC approach is the, the first step that I mentioned, in which uh, the set of critical transmission lines is identified on which one will try to estimate the flow as a result of the market. And in NTC, as you, as you probably know, one typically only took cross-border transmission lines into account, while now, actually, in theory, any transmission line could be considered, um, or which limits could be considered, I must say. Uh, maybe you can give us another more uh, tangible example of uh, yeah, how, what, what changes from NTC to FPMC. So we've already talked about Germany. Maybe It's, it's time for Germany again. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> time for our favorite, uh, another victim. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, okay, so focusing on Germany, um, we know there's often domestic trade from the north to the south with limited transmission capacity directly from the north to the south, as I mentioned before. But thanks to flow-based market coupling, uh, we can take into account the limited transmission capacity within Germany, interconnecting the north and the south. On top of that, the loop flows that it causes through Belgium, the Netherlands and France can also be taken into account by the, the TSOs in Belgium, the Netherlands and France. Uh, one can just have a more accurate estimation of the commercial transmission capacity for trades in, in Germany's neighbors as well. Um, so it's beneficial for um, for all players from a well-pressed perspective, uh, indeed, at least in theory. <laughs> yeah. This is a complex procedure, right? So uh, what, are, what are the key parameters that TSOs um, have to decide, or maybe not decide is the right word, but calculate? And yeah. How, yeah, how is this done? Can you maybe enlighten us? Yeah, well, us that? I would say both decide and calculate is uh, <laughs> quite an accurate description, though. Um, so it's we already know it's a bit subjective, I guess. That's where you're. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's a bit subjective and, and definitely predictive as well. Um, so yeah, we, we become quite technical right now, but I will try to stay uh, high level and understandable. Um, basically, the physical capacity of selected critical transmission lines. Um, is reduced with two factors to obtain the commercially available capacity. Firstly, we have the loop flow margin to account for flows to the grid that are not seen, quote-unquote, by the market. Secondly, there is a safety margin to deal with unforeseen events such as unplanned outages of transmission lines or power plants. And if we take that loop flow margin and the safety margin, we have the resulting commercial capacity, also re referred to as a remaining available margin, a RAM, 
people in the field will, will yeah. know what I mean. So this would be the equivalent of NTC. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And it's this RAM, this commercially available capacity is then implicitly auctioned in the day ahead markets. Um, so then it comes down to uh, calculating, estimating the loop flow margin that needs to, that needs to be there. Um, so estimating, why do you need to estimate? Why don't you know exactly? Um, Are we just not smart enough yet? <laughs> <laughs> Are no, we no, the problem? No. Um, indeed, it, it's it's quite predictive um, because as a, as we just said, the parameters are set two days before delivery, while the market takes place one day before delivery. So we're still in a very predictive um, environment. Secondly, there is this fundamental flaw of flow-based market coupling that the parameters, or most of the parameters we're deciding on, are part of some sort of circular circular problem. Um, and I might maybe explain that better with... Uh, Discussing one particular parameter, for example. You basically need to know what the flows in your network will be, so what the market clearing will be, in order to properly give the, uh, to give the capacity that the market can use. Yeah. And then it will then use the, do exactly what you predicted. That's yeah, the, that's, that's a great way of explaining it indeed. Um, basically, you're two days before delivery, but you need information that you only have at the day of delivery. <laughs> so uh, that's indeed a circular problem and um, that displays or that shows that, that it's super complex to come up with these uh, commercially uh, transmission capacities. Yeah, and actually, so we, so we said that this is also a bit of a subjective, it's, it's more of a decision rather than calculation and that's, I think, to clarify on that, there's this trade-off between security and trade basically right that's what we mean by subjective yeah correct you could say that to to to, to some extent um it's indeed a complex calculation method um and there's a trade-off um and that's maybe or it can maybe be best explained by zooming a bit out or zooming out a bit i must say um by saying that the actions of the TSOs in determining the parameters, um, the TSOs have quite some freedom, but they are still regulated by some national uh, regulators. Um, however, and I think that's then maybe also a fundamental problem in there, TSOs and regulators might have partly conflicting interests where regulators strive to maximize cross-border transmission capacity to increase uh, price convergence while keeping TSO tariffs as, at acceptable levels. There are also TSOs that are primarily concerned with system reliability and stability and may therefore be more conservative or more or have some sort of risk-averse uh, attitude, um, to phrase it properly. Because if something goes wrong, it's... Uh, let's say yeah, the in the end, it's the TSO that's responsible yeah. for a reliable operation of the grid. Um and yeah, the more uh, commercial capacity that you give to the market to trade, the more you put that reliability and stability at risk. Um, and probably there is some sort of trade-off in between, an optimal value in between. But we must acknowledge that, that it's very, very hard to do so. Um, but that doesn't mean Again, we because should of strive for the predictive element as well. You know. Also, indeed... Um, yeah, indeed. So in the end, it's just a, a trade-off between real-time security and reliability of the system uh, on the one hand and uh, the welfare that can be generated in the day-ahead market on the other hand. 
Um, and that's that's quite a task indeed. Um, but we we maybe I maybe distracted you a bit from uh, you were explain you wanted to explain um, one of the to give an example of the key parameters used in FBMC and the how that ah, yeah, is yeah, 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 so, yeah. For, so you for, mentioned GSKs I think yeah for the interested li- listeners indeed the, the GSKs are indeed a um, quite popular uh, parameter to discuss uh, also by the the players in industry um, uh, so let's look indeed at the, at the generation shift keys or, or GSKs um, as we abbreviate them um, to put it concisely GSKs measure how the injection at a node impacts the net expert position of a zone. For example, imagine two nodes A and B in a zone. You could maybe expect that an increase of one megawatt of injection at node A determines 50% of the increase in the net expert position of the zone and then 50% for the other node B. But that's not the case. If there are super cheap generators at node A, for example, and super expensive ones at node B, then the generators at node A will have priority in the market to produce and cover the demand. And therefore, an increase of one megawatt of injection at node A would have a contribution to the net expert position of the zone with more than 50%. And to make this complex story then complete, one anticipates basically on information that is only available after the market clearing. So after the GSKs are actually set. And this is the circular problem I was referring to uh, before. Just to say that it's it's quite hard to to come up with with these parameters. And we're going to zoom out a bit and we're going to stop talking about uh, technical things, uh, which I don't know how many people must understand GSKs, <laughs> honestly. Well, in Europe, there must be people. at least six, I think. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Hopefully, at least there's one guy in Belgium or a person in Belgium, Austria, the rest of CWE who understands. But okay, we're going to zoom out and uh, ask ourselves, uh, well, I'm going to ask you, here. what's the... What's the goal of FBMC? So we we hear about uh, price oh, convergence as a metric. Yeah. Um, what, what does that mean? What is price convergence, first of all? Um, yeah, price convergence is an interesting element. Price conversion basically tells us um, something on the price differences that are there between the market zones in our uh, flow-based region. Um, if there is price convergence, that means that the transmission lines or the interconnectors between the countries are not congested. So and we want price conversion. We want the same electricity price in Germany and Belgium. Uh, is that correct? Um, I say we as in uh, uh, from the European... Legislators, yeah. yeah. Um, I would say, uh, well, well, legislators indeed want it. We want to push for more price convergence and from a welfare perspective that makes sense. Although you could argue that when you never have congestion and you always have price convergence you also have an overdimensioned system for example but um for now in the case where we are now it's it's not a bad thing to to focus on the price convergence and mm. and, and i guess also uh, we we hear a lot these days about if we really do want to reach net zero we will need more transmission capacity in europe yeah so uh, i Definitely. guess price convergence is good for that and you but you talked about uh welfare there so social uh, welfare so I don't know if everyone's familiar with that term, but it's this uh, a term that is used in economics to describe sort of profits from producers and 
what's called the surplus of consumers, right? Yeah, yeah, that's basic econo- economy indeed. Yeah. That uh, both producers and, and and consumers are uh, are willing to partake in the market uh, because they have something to gain. Um, and, and that's in the what case we of the, so yeah, for welfare. producers, it's uh, their profits, and we talk about surplus with consumers. So yeah, we're exactly, just sort of exactly, getting a benefit. But yeah. uh, it's maybe interesting to point out that. Um, while this total welfare, the total social welfare increases, that's again, like you said, basic economics. Yeah, there indeed. might be different people or different actors who gain more from trade than others, or some who lose out. So I uh, recently I, we're talking about there's these high electricity and gas prices in in Europe, right? So in France, um, because France has a lot of nuclear. Uh, the electricity prices there were lower comparatively to the rest of Europe, right? And then I, I remember watching a video where they were saying that um, there was movement in France to try and limit trade so that the low prices could be benef- benefited by French people. I don't think this happened. And then eventually, I think there was the nuclear fleet that uh, was more unavailable. So, um, so, so that argument quickly reversed, I guess. But the point, it's maybe worth mentioning that trade is um overall beneficial from a system from a system perspective no but you 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 raise something interesting i'm not sure whether the high prices in germany are linked with the cross-border trade i think it's also mainly linked with the unavailability of the nuclear reactions reactors yeah, you right mean now. in france yeah in france no, um but indeed also but and that's basic eco- economy if you have two countries one is exporting one is importing um, when trading, the price in the exporting country is going to increase and the price in the importing country is going to decrease. From a welfare perspective, uh, from a system perspective, um, that is beneficial. But looking at the exporting country alone, yeah, you might question, yeah, the price is going to raise. Um, still is beneficial for... Um, uh, for the exporting countries, but then specifically for the generators at that specific exporting country, where you could question how it impacts the consumers in that country because the price is increasing. But the, okay, that's maybe politically to um, to, to judge on on that. Um, I mean, but these are these are arguments, that, or questions that come up. These right? are things that come up indeed. Right. Um, but uh, maybe let's move on. So. Uh, can you tell me where we are in terms of implementation? So, uh, wh- where do we have flow-based market coupling? How has it been going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, since 2015, um, we have the flow-based market coupling in Central Western Europe. So, Belgium, the Netherlands, France, Austria, Germany, and Luxembourg. Um, and right after that introduction in 2015, results were actually super promising. Um, so the cross-border exchanges increased, price differences between the countries decreased, which is all super beneficial from a welfare perspective. However, after some time, one started noticing that the TSOs actually have a lot of freedom in setting the parameters that lead to the commercial transmission capacities for trade. So, for example, these GSKs that we talked about. Yeah, previously. for example, the yeah. GSKs, uh, you can set them in different ways and that impacts how the market outcome is. Uh, and that impacts the, the, the social welfare gain that we have of, of installing flow-based market coupling, for example. Um, another example could be that, that there was this German TSO also in 2015 that suddenly included a new critical transmission line inside the German zone, 
making trade way more restricted than before. And um, yeah, by now a lot of regulators and, and researchers eh, among ourselves as well have now identified that that this significantly impacted the welfare that, that flow-based market coupling brought. So there are still some vulnerabilities, I would say, um, as a result of these, these, these potential incidents. So... Is that is that still the case today? Uh, do we still see that TSOs are, are using the freedom they have in setting parameters to be more conservative to again uh, well be more um, reliable uh, mm. operate the grid more reliably? Well, uh, well, 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 let's first look at the facts. Um, what we observe is that the price differences on the longer term also continuously stayed below the levels of the period before the introduction of flow-based market coupling. So we're doing at least better than NTC. So that's that's beneficial indeed. Um, however, what we did observe as well was were declining levels of cross-border exchange volumes over time, even below the levels um, of, of before the introduction of flow-based market coupling. A researcher, research from, from some academics, among myself, <laughs> showed that, that, that it should be attributed to some changing market conditions, though. Um, so there are a number of variables that also impact the amount of cross-border trade, apart from the methodology flow-based market coupling. Yeah? For example, um, if there are a lot of nuclear power plants in, f- power plants in France that, that need to shut down for some various reasons... Um, which would increase trade. Yeah, or this or this, this also have an el- has an element, or, or this is an important element to consider as well when uh, when assessing cross border trade. Um, there is also a gas price. It, it changes the the merit order. It changes um, which trade is more beneficial. Um, there are a lot of coal plants in Germany as well that also have unavailabilities from time to time that also impacts the the cross-border trade that is there. Um, so that also has a big impact. But if we just ignore that for a moment or we take into account it, no, we don't ignore it, we take into account the effect, then we can actually include that the methodology flow-based market coupling was super beneficial on the longer term, increasing both price conversions as uh, um, the cross-border exchange volumes as well. Um, actually, interesting to note, um, some time ago it was uh, also announced that the region that adopts the flow-based market coupling will actually expand uh, from the Central Western Europe region towards the core region of Europe. And that even goes towards Romania in, uh, in Eastern Europe. So we have a much larger area in Europe that is adopting the flow-based market coupling is, and in that way is also interconnected uh, more optimally. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, this should happen next month. Um, so there are exciting times ahead, I would say. Indeed. And I think it's maybe time to wrap this podcast up a bit. So <laughs> can you leave us with uh, the remaining channel, uh, the remaining challenges, not just for flow-based market yeah. coupling, but also cross-border trade? Oh, I would yeah, for cross-border trade in general, um, I would maybe summarize the main challenges in, in, in two main points. Huh? Firstly, current market zones are too large. Secondly, there exists a lot of freedom for TSOs to set the parameters. Um, these are two things that are, are highly challenging and things that should and could improve um, in the future. So setting the parameters for flow-based market coupling, to, to be clear. Right. Yeah, 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 exit. Okay, but but so you say the market zones are too large. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so for example, what 
Yeah, yeah. Any particular yeah, example? I think we shortly touched upon it in the beginning of the podcast. Um, saying that large bidding zones could result definitely in the zonal market design in improper price signals to market participants. Huh? So normally price differences among countries should trigger investments in increased transmission capacity and increased generation capacities in zones with relatively high prices. So in two large bidding zones with a uniform price in each zone, the price differences between the zones do not reflect the need for investments in sufficient detail. I think we can say that. Uh, moreover, it also results in large loop flows which have priority access to the grid, uh, as we showed. And uh, as such, reduce the cross-border exchange volumes. Um, and actually, I, I kind of anticipated <laughs> that we would uh, <laughs> discuss this in the, in the podcast. And I did some so a bit of research before coming here. And I looked at the, the loop flows actually through Belgium between 2017 and 2021. Uh, and I took the average. And then I compared it with the average uh, cross-border trade in which, which Belgium is uh, engaged in. So... And then I actually saw that the average loop flow through Belgium is on that period is 57% of the, the cross-border trade in which Belgium is is is, uh, is involved in, so both import and export. And it, it's just to say that loop flows through Belgium, you can't neglect them. <laughs> They're quite significant um, and the impact. But the same counts for the Netherlands and France. Um so a more optimal configuration of the market zones would allow to limit loop flows and hence increase exchanges, price conversions, and social welfare. But besides some studies on, on new market zone configurations, actions um, in this field, um, at least as far as I know, have been limited to a split of the market zone of Austria, uh, Germany, uh, and also Luxembourg uh, into one Austria one for Austria only and one market zone for Germany and Luxembourg on the other hand. Uh, and that split happened in 2018. Um, but yeah, I'm curious to see that debate evolving indeed. Yeah, is there any movement there? Because uh, I well, think we were both in a webinar where uh, Acer was sort of uh, yeah, yeah, indeed. doing a summary of how FBMC is going. and uh, Yeah, yeah, the debate is ongoing and Acer is indeed dealing with, with that and performing some studies on it. Um, I'm not sure about specific roadmaps towards the future, but um, I think it's certain that this will be a political debate in the end as well and uh, heavily debated by a lot of stakeholders. Um, but it's good to have this discussion and to this debate. We can only uh, agree with that. Um, and actually, uh, why, because maybe this is implicit, but why is it that we're, for example, North and South Germany is not being split into two zones? Is What's the, because the other alternative is to, also just install install transmission until that congestion is dealt with right uh installing transmission capacities is also indeed a but good that's option. not going to happen anytime soon um well i'm sure there are some projects planned but i'm, I'm not aware of some significant large changes in in that field um Although it's I not in the next like three years, it takes a while. To yeah, 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 yeah. That's indeed, what I mean, indeed, you know? indeed, indeed. And also, yeah, it's politically sensitive to say that you're living in one country and producing or consuming electricity, at least from the wholesale electricity market, is uh, is cheaper or more expensive depending on whether you live in the north or the south. Yeah, that's it's politically sensitive, and um, that's the challenge of of translating academic research to yeah real life solutions. Yeah, indeed. It seems inherently unfair, B but perhaps logical if you 
Yeah, no, we could debate on that. Yeah. Um, because on the other hand, from a welfare perspective and from the system perspective, yeah, it benefits the society or the country as a whole. Yeah. Um, but intuitively, that's not maybe what you, you first think of. You go, oh, yeah, fair enough. Social welfare is increased. I'm fine. With it. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> it's it, not, it, I don't it, know if everyone thinks in these terms. Yeah, but yeah. sorry. It uh, would, you, be, would be interesting, I, I think, to, to look into that, how the, how the benefits are allocated uh, of such a song reconfiguration. But uh, you, you mentioned your second point about uh, freedom of TSOs to choose yeah, parameters. Yeah, yeah, correct. That's uh, the second big challenge, I think, in cross-border trade. So currently, uh, as we extensively discussed by now, there is a lot of freedom left to TSOs in calculating and allocating the tr- transmission capacity that is provided to the market. So regulatory intervention might be beneficial uh, to guarantee that sufficient transmission capacity is made available for trade. Uh-huh. So uh, to put it in a technical terms, sufficiently high ROMs, uh, remaining available margins. Hmm. Um, and These this were the sort of FBMC equivalent of net transfer capacities, right? Yeah, so yeah, 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 exactly. Amount that's exactly. given to the markets to trade. Correctly, yeah. correctly. And if you look at the possibilities for regulatory intervention, we, we can think of two options that exist. Uh, minimum criteria, so that's a, a minimal uh, commercial transmission capacity that should be made available to the markets, or at least that's, that's imposed by legislation. And on the other end, another option to pursue regulatory intervention are uh, monetary incentives. Um, so looking at the min minimum criteria, so the minimal trading capacities that should be made available to the market. Since 2018, that's actually in place. Um, so it demands a, a minimal transmission capacity on each critical transmission line of at least 20% of its physical transmission capacity. And now you could think 20% that's really low, but actually it made a short it, it made a difference. Uh, so on some lines, uh, the commercial transmission capacity was even lower than 20% of the physical transmission capacity. Um, Legislators evaluated this and decided that um, by 2025, this will be expanded towards 70%. Uh, Yeah, it increases their efforts. eh? It increases the careful consideration between reliability and allowing uh, welfare gains from um, cross-border trade. Um, I think that's a big challenge. And with this percentage, that puts stresses to to perform that trade-off more accurately. And actually, one thing that we didn't mention is that if you if you are forced to allow uh, to give this capacity to uh, the market, right, and then uh, well, you have flows which would violate limits on transmission lines, you then have to perform corrective actions, right? So asking generators to produce more or less, which costs TSOs money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That gives a cost indeed. Uh, it, it, it's not only the cost component that counts, but it's also the yeah, it's an effort eh, to to perform that congestion management. Yeah. Um, so that's indeed also an additional element in that trade-off. Um, but overall, coming back to the the minimum criteria, so the minimal transmission capacities for trade, I think it it could be an effective measure. But um, these measures are very static, eh? and they could therefore fail to stimulate the welfare optimal determination of the of the parameters. Um, instead, I think. Those criteria should be based on a careful techno-economical analysis, which is currently not the case in Europe. Moreover, as we see in practice... So this min-ram criteria was sort of plucked out of thin air. Would that be... Is that maybe being a bit too 
blunt or um, I think it's rather a political optimum instead of a techno-economical optimum. Let's okay, say it's like yeah, that. Yeah. And I didn't find any uh, analysis on where that 70% is based on. Let, let's put it that way. But uh, I was going to say... And, uh, a lot of deviations actually exist on that on that measures in practice, um, and that strongly lowers the effectiveness of the measures it's in the first place. Um, for example, because there are quite some loop flows in in some countries, um, TSOs are allowed by regulators to deviate from it. Uh, for example, in Belgium, that's also the case. Uh, our the transmission system operator Elia is allowed to deviate from minimum criteria. Uh, if it can prove that there is there are loop flows going through uh, Belgium, uh, mainly coming from Germany, so so that strongly lowers the the effectiveness of the of the measure. And so, what's the other option? So the other option, um, from my perspective, are monetary incentives that are directly given from the regulator to the TSO, um, and I think they are very promising, in my opinion, as they directly stimulate TSOs to search for the welfare optimal determination of the TSO parameters in which multiple objectives such as price conversions, reliability, congestion management could be taken into account. Um, and for Belgium, for example, that's that's already the case um, uh, to stimulate TSOs and that's also simply recognizing um, that TSOs have multiple tasks to do um, and there's a careful trade-off in what they, how they should do the things to serve all the goals that they have. Uh, and with monetary incentives, um, it's more easily for, for regulators. But so what do you mean by monetary incentives exactly? So I pay you to have a MinRAM? I or? pay you to behave. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> to be more specific... Um, there are also performance indicators uh, for the TSO that the regulator designs. Oh, so basically just paying for price convergence, for example. So it depends. Yeah, for example, so if there are... Uh, the, the regulator in Belgium at least sets some baselines on the ROMs that should be made available to the market. If that, if the actual ROMs on some lines is higher, then the, the TSO is rewarded by a monetary amount of money. That can be charged in the TSO tariff uh, that goes to the end bill. Um, on the other hand, um, there is also a measure that wants to limit congestion management costs, huh? so redispatch costs. Um, and if that cost that the TSO typically also passes through um, to the end consumer, um, if that's surpassed, uh, then there's a penalty. So then the monetary uh, gain it had is then decreasing, and so designing that allows to 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 look for the for the welfare optimum. Um, but we must also say that the, in practice the procedure is a bit more complex um, with different budgets that need to be approved by regulators um, and so on. Fascinating stuff. So yeah. <laughs> I think we've talked for quite a while. Thank you so much, Michiel, for thanks uh, for all having your me. Wisdom. I, I hope everyone uh, or most listeners uh, enjoyed it. Maybe understood something, and maybe are taking away something from this. So uh, very curious for the for the feedback that I will uh, receive. Yeah, I'm. I'm hope. Uh, I'm curious and hopeful. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you once again, Michiel. And You're welcome. Goodbye.